This is American Real, where we aim to inspire, empower, and enlighten you through the stories of our guests. Here's your host, Roger Brooks. How did all this begin? And where, you know, first of all, where did you learn how to sell? You know, I started learning how to sell before I knew that I was learning how to sell. Uh, because all of us sell, right? I mean, if you're in the business, I won't even say if you're in the business, if you've ever convinced a friend to let you have the ball, or if you've ever convinced a friend, let's go here for, for, for lunch, uh, or if you, you've ever convinced someone to go out with you, you're, you're selling. Uh, because selling is all about persuading. It's about influencing. It's about educating some people. And the two other words that I like to use when describing what I call the five synonyms of sales, it's also motivating and inspiring people. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Rob Cornelis. For a quarter of a century, you have been known as the sales coach for sports. Your firm, Game Face Inc., pioneered sales training for professionals and collegiate sports teams beginning in 1995 and has since advised more than 50,000 executives at more than 300 sports brands worldwide, including the NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL, Major League Soccer, and the NCAA, uh, forever changing how sports properties connect with their fans and clients. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Roger. It's good to be uh, with you today. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. I'm so excited because, as I mentioned off camera, I'm a lifelong sports fan of all sports. I just mm. love sports. And in some ways, I feel like I, I missed my opportunity. Like, if I was to – like, I, I interview a lot of people – but if out of all the people I interview, and, and we haven't even got into your story yet, but if I was to say, okay, there's one person I would have loved to have worked for or with, it would have been someone like you, Rob, because I, I just love sports, and I think what you're doing is phenomenal. You know, I'm, uh, I'm very blessed to be in the industry that I am and to have had the career track that I've been blessed with so far. I recognize what you say is true for so many people, probably countless people around the country who who'd lo who would love to have a career in sports. My job is to try to make that possible for people. And then when they're in it, uh, try to make them as successful as possible so that it's not just um, a quick diversion in their career, but it's really a, a lifetime pursuit and they can leave a legacy with it. Oh, it's wonderful. And I just, before we get started here, I want to congratulate you, congratulate you on 25 years. That's, oh. that's phenomenal. Thank you. That's, uh, I never could have imagined when we started in 1995 out of my den, uh, when we used to be located in Portland, Oregon, that I'd be talking 25 years to someone like you about a 25-year company. Because uh, we both know how, how hard it is to keep a company going. So uh, sometimes I think, Rob, you've been an imposter this whole time. You shouldn't have lasted this long. Um, but, you know, it's there are certain principles that we've tried to abide by. And then of course it's kind of cliche, but I can be, I can, you know, be a testifier to the fact that you got to have great clients who trust you. Uh, and then of course, people, uh, the, the people are what make game face. And, and that's why on our logo, we've never really had a face because I didn't want to define what game face meant for people. I wanted it to be something that people would define in their own mind. And, uh, and I didn't want it to be too subjective. Uh, and so I've got great people that really define what it means to be a game face executive. And we try to do anything we can to make the people we work with uh, acquire and, and keep those same attributes so they can have long careers and make a difference in what they're doing as well. Wonderful. Well, you just mentioned Portland, Oregon. And I used to live there, actually. So is that where you're from? Is that where the business started? Yeah. Yeah. I was born and raised in Portland, actually. No kidding. So a couple, I mean, there's going to be a couple of things right now that come out that we didn't plan, 
And one of the <laughs> things is um, Rip City USA. I was caught up in this huge lawsuit, actually, when I was a student at Portland State University. I was printing T-shirts called Rip City. It just said Rip City USA. And the, the Portland Trailblazers came after me for copyright infringement, for trademark infringement. So I don't You're know the guy. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Now, I don't remember what year that was. 1992. So you have to... 1990, 1992. Okay. So, so I was living in Los Angeles until 1993 when I moved back to Portland. Okay. But, but because I was a huge follower and always have been a lifetime Portland Trailblazer fan, I'd follow the Blazers no matter where I lived and where I live today. Uh, so I, I always remember stories like that related to the Blazers. So you're that guy, huh? Wow. <laughs> and there was such an uproar by the fans. I mean, the, you know, the fans, they are just incredible for, you know, they, they, they're diehards, like, just like they are in Green Bay for the Packers. And yeah. um, they actually supported myself. There was a diner called Rip City Diner. And the Blazers ended up relinquishing the, the, the lawsuits and, and let the Rip City name go out into, into the public domain. So, mm-hmm. but as a, like, I was, I think 20 years old at the time and uh, man, it was, uh, it was interesting, but something really amazing came out of it. And then I'll, we'll turn the story over to you where, where it begins. But I received a phone call from Clyde Drexler's agent um, at that time, because there was a lot of articles in the newspaper and he asked me to come work for them. So I got to work for Clyde, the Glide, for two years of my life, and it was uh, one of the most amazing experiences of, uh, of my life. Man, that is a fantastic story. I mean, you started off as a rebel, and then, <laughs> and then you got a dream job in Portland. That's fantastic. I was just printing T-shirts uh, as, a, as a college student. But um, no, so that's really great that, that you have your roots there, and Portland's just an amazing town. We have family there, so... Uh, we we definitely enjoy going back, but let's dive into your story. So, how did all this begin? And um, where you know, first of all, where did you learn how to sell? Huh. Well, you know, I started learning how to sell before I knew that I was learning how to sell, uh, because all of us sell, right? I mean, if you're in the business, I won't even say if you're in the business. If you've ever convinced a friend to let you have the ball, or if you've ever convinced a friend, let's go here for, for, for lunch, uh, or if you, you've ever convinced someone to go out with you, you're, you're selling, uh, because selling is all about persuading. It's about influencing. It's about educating some people. And the two other words that I like to use when describing what I call the five synonyms of sales, it's also motivating and inspiring people. And so you've done that, Roger, in your career. Uh, you were a salesman when you were hawking those T-shirts back in Portland in 1992 uh, because you had an influence on people. Um, and so when you ask, where did I learn to sell? I, you know, I remember my first job uh, in high school was, well, I was, I, first of all, I was a paper boy back in the early days, like a lot of us were when we had you know, newspapers. Were you a paper boy as well? Absolutely. Yes, I was. Yeah. So the old Oregon Journal um, and then later the Oregonian. I used to deliver papers in the, in the summertime, especially. But my first real job was I was a bill collector. Um, and by that, I meant I worked for the Oregonian. That's the major newspaper in Oregon and in Portland. And my job was to work for one of the distributors of the Oregonian who had his own routes and he had a lot of people that wouldn't pay their bills. that wouldn't pay their paper bill. Right. So he hired me and essentially said, I want you to go into these neighborhoods, knock on their door and tell them that they owe $7 and 20 cents or a hundred dollars and 12, a hundred dollars and three cents or whatever it may be. Just the, these random amounts. And he said, I'll give you a 50% of whatever you collect. So I did it. And I didn't look at myself as a salesperson. I was just trying to keep people honest, right? Hey, your bill is due. <laughs> but uh, he put me, and you'll, you'll appreciate this especially, Roger. He put me in Northeast Portland. Mm. Um, so, yeah, Roger goes, hmm, yeah. because when you say Northeast Portland, it's, it's, um, it, it's a, a depressed part of town, unfortunately. And so 
there's poverty there. And, uh, and for me to knock on the doors of people that probably couldn't afford the paper or they could at one time, but now they're down on their luck and try to say to them, you know, this young high school punk, Hey, I need your $53. You know, I had to learn to be persuasive and influential, but do it in a way where people wouldn't either slam the door in my face or run me off their porch. Um, and so I think that was the first taste I had of what we'd call traditional selling. But hey, I, I'm one of seven children. I was number six of seven. <laughs> when it comes to trying to get what you want from your parents, you better learn how to persuade, right? Or cereal in the morning, right? <laughs> That's right, right? I, I want that last ding-dong in the box, right? So um, everything we do requires some level of salesmanship. And sooner or later we recognize that and we either decide we're going to get good at it or we're going to let other people be more influential and more persuasive than us and when we finally do get good at it we start to recognize that it can turn into a profession and that's what happened to me and uh, that's really what started my sports career so let me ask you this rob because i think it's just appropriate for today's world we hear the word uh, empathy or being empathetic when you look back at those days of knocking on those doors, maybe the word you didn't know or, or recognize at that time, but did you have, was there an empathetic side to you um, for being able to persuade? Did that play into it way back then? Absolutely, it did. In fact, I'll share with you a story that I don't think I've shared publicly before. Um, my parents were divorced when I was 12 years old. And my mom, uh, who had not been in the workforce, she was raising seven kids. Well, now she had no choice but to go try to earn a living for us. So what she did, and this is what I observed, and I really haven't even chatted with her much about this over the years. You know, thankfully, she's still with us. Uh, but in order to try to earn, um, you know, uh, some money for food and other things that a, a large family of kids needs at that in, in those days. She went door to door selling dog food. Now, I don't know if people even can relate to that, but I can remember vividly that she would put these bags of sample dog food into a basket that had wheels on it. And she would go door to door trying to sell dog food to people. Um, my mom was not a salesman in the traditional sense. But my mom did raise seven kids. And like I said, there are some skills necessary to manage a home, right? And to raise children who hopefully do good in the world. So I learned from her the, uh, the importance of perseverance. I learned the importance of, hey, no one else, is gonna, no one else has your back on this one. You got to go do it yourself. So there's that independence that, that salespeople have to obtain. But I also learned empathy. Uh, because um, I, I had been there before. I, I, we had been down on our luck, right, as a family. My father was actually an attorney, which is also uh, a profession that relies heavily on sales skills. Yes. Whether you're convincing a client or persuading a jury or convincing a judge. So I think inherently I learned some of these skills from my father but those two parents who, you know, were very different in the end, uh, they taught me to appreciate what we had, though sometimes, sometimes we had abundance and other times we had scarcity as a family. But they taught me to be grateful for what we had and to recognize that just because we may have had abundance at a time, it wasn't because we were better than someone else. It's simply because conditions in life allowed us to have enjoyment and as we said in our home, blessings that perhaps others weren't enjoying at that time. But it didn't take much for the tables to turn. I could be down on my luck. And I could have one bad accident, one bad illness, um, one bad encounter, you know. And then life changes very dramatically. And we're all seeing this in 2020, of course. Uh, so I, think, I appreciate you bringing up that word, empathy because it's absolutely critical in sales. Uh, and it's also, I think, critical to be a good boss, uh, to be a good neighbor, to be a good spouse, to be a, a good sibling, 
to have empathy for other people, just to recognize that um, your good luck today um, may not last. And so you want to treat people the way you'd want to be treated when you're in their shoes. So bring us a little bit further in the career. (laughs) How, how does, how does the business begin back in 1995? What stars align to make this actually come to fruition? Well, uh, the beginning of Game Face really started uh, three years previous when on a whim, I decided to take the invitation that someone had extended to me to go interview for a ticket sales job with the Los Angeles Clippers. Now I was, don't laugh. This is the, yeah, you're right. It's the 1992 version of the LA Clippers. Wow. Um, So for those of your audience who aren't following sports very regularly or historically, the Clippers in the early nineties and certainly in the eighties were a really bad franchise. Um, They were the butt of every late night comics jokes. um, And they were all deserved because we just had a terrible team We played in a poor section of town in a barn of an arena. Uh, We never won. Our owner was kind of the laughing stock of the league. He was eventually run out of the NBA, the National Basketball Association, because of his, just his nature, his personality. Um, uh, So anyway, I I took a a call from someone that I had just recently met, and he said, hey, why don't you come interview with the Clippers? Because he saw something in me, Roger that I didn't quite see in myself. He thought that I could be a successful salesperson because at that time I was working at Universal Studios Hollywood. Um, and guess what I did there? I, because I spoke fluent Japanese back in those days, um, I was actually a tour guide on the Universal Studios backlot for Japanese tourists. Unbelievable. Yeah, which in and, of, in and of itself is a sales job, right? You got to entertain, you got to keep, keep people captivated, you got to have a message that's interesting. So we had met, and so he called me up and said, I'm starting a, a new sales force with the Clippers. I'm a sales manager. I think you've got something that would be helpful here. So at first I thought, this is, such, this is so far afield from anything that I ever, I've ever wanted to do. I've always loved basketball, but I never thought you could make a career out of it unless you were, you know, at least six, three, two fifty, or whatever, which if I stood up, you'd see that I'm not. Um, so, uh, anyway, I took him, I took him on his word for his word. And I, and I showed up and I interviewed and I was, I thought I, I failed miserably, but he and his boss, a gentleman by the name of Carl Lair, who is an institution in professional sports because he is a, not only a survivor, but he has been a mentor for thousands of people who have gone on to do great things, not only in sports, but in industry, who started at the LA Clippers. Carl has been there, I think, approaching 40 years now. Um, but Carl um, and this other gentleman whose name was Charles, they interviewed me, and they invited me back for a second and a third interview. And by the time we were done with the third interview, I really wanted this job. Um, it was commission only which is kind of stupid that I would consider such a thing. But back in those days, you could offer commission-only jobs. And, uh, and I decided to take it uh, because I thought, eh, this will be a temporary gig, and I'll watch some games up close, and I'll go in the locker room and meet the Clyde Drexlers of the world, and it'll be fun. So that's what I did. Well, long story short, I, I had some success at the Clippers. Um, they promoted me within a few months. I actually took Charles' job because – he eventually quit. Um, and then a gentleman by the name of John Spolstra recognized that I was doing with the Clippers after a couple of seasons. And he invited me to come join his consulting firm uh, because he was um, the, the, the guru of sports marketing for sports teams in the early 90s. Wow. And when he came in, or rather when he called and invited me to join his firm, along with his partner, a gentleman by the name of Doug Piper, Um, I was ecstatic. I mean, I was shaking because I was so, I was so nervous and enthralled that they would call me this, this know nothing salesperson from in Los Angeles. But they said, we've heard about what you're doing. We're looking for a third person to join us. Uh, Would you consider it? And of course, I would have, I would have gotten on a plane that moment if they'd asked me to. But then get this, Roger, they said, oh, by the way, 
we're based in Portland, Oregon. Is that a problem? <laughs> yeah, I had no idea they were in Portland. Um, my wife and I are both from Portland. We met in high school in the Portland area. So I said, no, I, th I think I can make that work. So we were hired. We moved up to Portland after a couple of years of working uh, with that firm, which unfortunately is no longer uh, practicing. Uh, they're no longer in, in business. But after a couple of years of doing that, I, I went to John and Doug and I said, guys, I love what you've taught me. I, I owe everything I've, I have right now to you, but I don't think the sports industry needs another consultant. I think what we need is a sales trainer. Hmm. And they said, what are you talking about? Sales training. I said, you know, teams have coaches for pitchers, for strength and conditioning, you know, for goalies, quarterbacks, running backs, whatever. But teams don't have trainers for their executives. Wow. And if you peel it back, we are a sales driven industry. If you don't put spectators in the seats, no one's going to want to sponsor your games. If no one's sponsoring your games, you can't sell it on television. Wow. Right? So we're a sales driven industry. We, granted, we, we, we have to roll the ball out there and the players have to be, uh, uh, you know, they have to be present. Uh, but if we're not selling this product continuously, especially if you're selling a bad team as far as wins and losses or a team that has a, a roster that nobody cares about or an owner that people can't stand or a venue that nobody wants to go to because it's unsafe or it's decrepit. If we're not selling this thing, e even to get the franchise in the market, you got to sell because you got to sell a tax, you know, a, a taxpayer, a, a, um, a base of taxpayers or a mayor or a governor to help you build the facility, to give you the land, to give you tax breaks in some cases. There's selling going on all over the place around sports. And I said, nobody's teaching us how to do this more effectively. In other, every other industry, it's happening, right? I mean, in tech, in manufacturing, in retail, in, in financial services, in professional services, in media, they have training all the time. It's a staple. But in sports, wow, yeah, it's crickets when you talk about it. So I just said, I just have this hunch that I think sports teams would accept, in fact, embrace a sales trainer if we made one available to them. And to their, you know, I respect John and Doug tremendously. They're still friends today, but they just saw it a little differently. They thought that they were on a path. In fact, they were on a path that the industry still was craving and, and they were right, but I simply felt there was another way for us to lend services and value to the industry. So on good terms, we decided to go different ways. And in 1995, Game Face was born out of my den. Unbelievable. I love that story. What I love about it most, Rob, is that I feel just the little time we've spent together here that that's what you felt in your gut and in your heart. Like that's, you saw an opportunity where you could fill a huge void in an industry that didn't, this didn't even exist. Right. Unbelievable. Right. Yeah. So, and it's, as I mentioned, it's so ironic, isn't it? That a training dominant industry. It is. Uh, what I often say is we have the greatest athletes in the world in professional sports, right? That by definition, they're the greatest athletes in the world. Um, and, you know, you pick your team, whatever team you follow, Dallas Cowboys, New York Yankees, Green Bay Packers, whatever. But you consider all the resources devoted to make those players even better than they already are. And then you ask, okay, what if that team has a down season? Or what if they got a competitive market? Uh, and yet you're asking the fans and sponsors and the suite holders and the people who are putting their name on the side of that building for $5 million a year, you're asking them just to accept that, oh, yeah, um, I'll be associated with your team as opposed to other ways I could spend my time and money. No, right. it, it, it requires a sales effort. And so I say those people that you hire for any one of those teams, and those are name brand teams. What about the teams that aren't doing so well? You hire a sales team to sell tickets or to sell the last seat in the house 
or to sell a sponsorship that, you know, compared to other advertising assets in the community may not look to have much value, but you don't give those, those salespeople any training when you've got a product, those salespeople don't even control. They just have to accept the product for what it is because that's a very unusual thing about sports selling sports salespeople have no bearing on the product, if you will. They can't go into the general manager's office as a ticket salesperson and say, hey, I've got an idea on our starting point guard position. I think I could sell more tickets if we'd make a change. Yeah. It's never going to happen. But if you're, you're in any other industry as a salesperson and the design or, or the product is malfunctioning, you tell the design team, you tell the, man, you tell the manufacturer, you tell the developers right? You collaborate, you provide feedback from the field. In sports, that's not welcome. In fact, you'd be kicked out of the organization if you tried walking down the hall and having that conversation with the general manager or the coach. So in other words, you got to just, you got to accept what they've given you and sell it anyway. I think that requires some training. <laughs> 100%. Okay. So I have to ask you, so day one, you open your business where do you start? Who, who are some of your first phone calls? What was, who was your first client? Well, um, I'm, I'm proud to say that uh, my first client was the New York Mets. Wow. And one, you know, I, I say I'm proud because I, I'm not, I don't have pride. I'm, I, don't, I hope I'm not prideful. Right. But the fact is that John Spolster's company, we were working and advising the New York Mets when I left that company. And of course they want to know where I was going, what I was doing. So I, I told their leadership team, well, I'm starting a company called game face and here's its purpose. Here's the vision I have for it. And they said, we're first, we're first in line. We'll take it. I was like, Oh, well that was easy. Um, and, and I, I was so flattered because, and again, not, not to try to stand, sound like I'm grandstanding, but in the city of New York, around what was then Shea Stadium. Just, just draw a map or a line in a, you know, a, around Shea Stadium. Go out, oh, five miles. Go out 10 miles. They probably have 500 people who could say, hey, I could be your sales trainer, right? I know New York. I'm a Mets fan from, you know, from a kid, from when I was a kid. Uh, I know this market, et cetera, et cetera. But the New York Mets decided to go all the way to Portland, Oregon, to select a sales trainer. Uh, so I'm forever grateful to that organization. And then my story became very easy to tell. Yeah, I'm Rob Cornelis. I'm with Gameface. And what we do is you, uh, the difference we're making right now, and you might be interested to know that we're working with the New York Mets and immediately I get, right. I get return phone calls. Um, so that was, that was obviously a boon to my, to my fledgling business. I would also say that within the city of Portland, as again, you'll appreciate this, Roger. Um, I thought, you know, I need to hone what I'm trying to do. I need to hone my craft. I need some guinea pigs who are going to be patient with me because I've never done this before, never been a trainer. Uh, so I, I reached out to the minor league teams in Portland at the time. The, the minor league affiliate of the Colorado Rockies was the Portland Rockies. Rockies. Yeah, you remember the Rockies, um, a single-A short-season club. Yep. Uh, the owners were Jack and Mary Kane. Wow. And I met with them at a restaurant in Portland, and I said, this is, this is who I am. This is what I'd like to do. I didn't say, will you be my experiment? But I said, I'll work pretty cheap because basically I want to I build a success story with you. And they had just moved their little single short-season team from Bend, Oregon to Portland, because the AAA franchise had moved to Salt Lake the, the year before. And so we worked together and together we built a success story. Uh, the first game the Portland Rockies ever played in Portland was in the old Civic Stadium. And guess how many people we put there on opening night, Roger? Just take a guess. The capacity was about 23,500. Short 20, season club. 23,500. Oh, you got me on that. Not quite. That would have been that would have been Cinderella's story. We put in over twenty one thousand people that no night. Kidding! That's amazing. 
because the previous franchise was a AAA franchise that only averaged 1,800 fans. The Thunder, wasn't it? It was the Beavers. Oh, the Beavers, okay. Portland Beavers, right. So we'd gone from an 1,800 um, average with a AAA franchise to a single-A franchise that only plays from June to September. We put in 21,000 on opening night. By the end of the year, we were averaging nearly 9,000 people a game. Amazing. So, and then it was the Portland Pride indoor soccer team, the Portland Winter Hawks minor league hockey team. So I guess the lesson I would, I would try to convey to people who are thinking about starting a business is build some early success stories. Don't try to make money. Be ready to work for free almost, not because you have no value, but because you have to build a success story that you can go out there and, and, and shop to people. So I had the Mets on one end. I had these minor league franchises in Portland on the other. The Mets called their friends at the L.A. Dodgers, told them what we were doing. The Dodgers said, you're in. And so my next client in the majors was the L.A. Dodgers. Oh, my gosh. Very fortunate. Unbelievable. That is so awesome, Rob. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, I, you know, we could talk about this all day. Uh, <laughs> and I would love to hear more stories. But, um, you know, how, how quickly did the company grow from a standpoint of, you know, okay, I need to hire my first employee and then my fifth employee? And, we're, you know, what does the company look like today? Well, we have, we have an interesting story. Um, it's, not, it's not just like this. Um, it's, it's like this. Uh, so, and there are many reasons for it. So to answer your question, within a year, I definitely needed to bring someone on because my, my second year in business after establishing myself, uh, I was on the road 42 weeks out of that second year. And which, which obviously validated this idea that this industry was starving for sales training. Uh, and so because I was gone so much, I could not take phone calls. I couldn't be responsive to, to inquiries as well as I should have been. So I hired someone and he worked out of his home office in Portland and he was basically running dispatch, answering the phone, sending me on my next, <laughs> right, right, my next gig. Um, but here's something that, uh, that really changed the business in my travels, Roger, and I could talk about this for too long. So you got to cut me off. But in my travels, one of the questions that inevitably would come up with me and the decision maker of the franchise, maybe as they're driving me to the hotel at the end of the day or to the airport at the end of the training, they would say, hey, Rob, you just trained all of our people. Uh, we need more people to, to add to our team, to add to our staff. Uh, we, could, you know, we could hire people out of college, but unfortunately, Rob, in those days, Colleges aren't producing the kind of talent that we need. They don't have the skills necessary to be successful in sports. They have information, but they don't have skills. And uh, it's kind of a nuanced business to sell in sports. It's, it's not brain surgery, but it is nuanced. So they would always ask me, who do you know that we could hire? And I'd say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're asking me to reveal good people at my other clients' offices. I can't do that. I'm not Robin Hood. Right. So I said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I cannot tell you where the good talent is because I'd be a poacher. I got tired of saying that. So within the within four years of starting, I decided to launch what we call the Game Face Sales Academy. And so this was a place where people who wanted to work in the industry, but couldn't get their foot in the door, didn't know where to go to get a sports job. And they would come to our academy, which is based in Portland. We leased big office space. About For us, it was big, 8,500 square feet. We created this sales academy where people would be trained in a classroom. And then we'd put them into a call center where they would demonstrate their skills and we'd help them hone those skills. And what would they be calling on? We actually created, through our clients in the sports industry, various sales campaigns so that we could be calling from our Portland call center on behalf of the St. Louis Cardinals or on behalf of the Miami Dolphins or on behalf of, a, of, a, of a, an event like the Super Bowl. And we would be selling tickets into various markets as though we are those franchises in those markets with, of course, their permission and their leads. 
And our academy students would be practicing the skills we had just trained them. Now, after anywhere from two to 12 weeks, those candidates were ready for hire. So what would we do? We would send them over to our search division, which I had now established, and we would place them into full-time positions within our network of teams. We had about an 80% placement rate. <laughs> and so Game Face is multifaceted. We're training in team offices on the road. We're doing sales campaign for teams in our academy in our office. We're bringing in job seekers and giving them finally a chance to break into their dream job. And then we're placing them out there. And now we have, if you, if you will, we're building a, a discipleship of game face executives. And so the, the, the business grew rapidly in the first five years. Um, that persisted for the next 10 years. And then in 2010, Rob decided to do something stupid. I decided to run for U.S. Congress. <laughs> um, now, in hindsight, I, I say stupid, tongue-in-cheek. Tongue in sure. I do not regret th that, decision, that decision. I was encouraged by many people to do it. I, I appreciated their confidence in me. Uh, I felt strongly about the issues back in those days, as I do even today. But I felt that I had been fortunate enough that I had a well-established company now, 15 years old, that was running itself well, fantastic employees who I trusted tremendously. And I thought I could step away from it and go do this. And so I did. I lost. I won my party's nomination, but I lost in the general election. My district was essentially Portland. And, uh, and, and yet it took about 16 months out of my life and a couple of limbs off my body. Um, well, after I lost, I went back to the business. The business had suffered because of my run because I wasn't really available. And I'm not to say that, not to say that it could only be me, but for many of my clients, they had relied solely on me. And that was a fault of mine in the way I, I set up my business. I, I didn't scale properly. Well, shortly about a few months after I lost, the person who beat me, who was a seven-term incumbent, he had to resign in disgrace because of a scandal that actually occurred during our campaign, which went hidden from the public view. Well, when he resigned, uh, we have an open seat, and the governor now calls a special election, and all of my former supporters are now on the phone with me saying, Rob, you gotta go again. You gotta do it again. This is the perfect opportunity. Um, took me only about 48 hours with my wife to decide to jump in a second time, which was a real shock to my business. The first time we kind of planned for it. The second time we hadn't. Um, my, pay, my, my employees, my colleagues were very patient with me, but they, you know, they patted me on the back and said, go for it, Rob, do it again. So I went again and I lost the second time, even after winning my party's nomination the second time. It was a hard fought election. Um, I came closer than anyone had for 30 years in my party, but I still lost. By this time, Roger, my business, I won't say it was a skeleton of its former self, but again, because I didn't have the training and the background in business, um, it, it, it was not able to withstand that second blow. So over the last few years, we've been building it back up. Now, we still ran the company when I was running for office, but obviously uh, many in the sports business thought I wasn't going to return to the sports business. And so they just found other solutions. And frankly, that's when a lot of my now competitors got into the industry because yeah. I created this void. Right. And, uh, and, you know, more power to them. They saw an opportunity just like I did, and they went for it. So, you know, I'm not crying over spilt milk. Uh, it's a decision I and only I made. Uh, but it was, it was a great lesson how to run and how to sustain a business. And now it's a great lesson on how to resuscitate a business. But the last three years have been awesome. Uh, and I have never been busier. And now we are, are spreading out into all industries, not just sports. 
we're actually about 50% sports and 50% what I would call corporate America. Uh, because our, on your LinkedIn, you're in the financial industry space and, and many others, correct? Oh, absolutely. Financial services, legal services. I'm working with law firms right now. Why would law firms hire Game Face? Because lawyers need to sell, right? And, and for all those reasons I mentioned earlier, and manufacturing companies, uh, we work with retail companies, other professional services as well, uh, media companies. So it's, it's a testament to the fact that principles are principles, across and the they apply across the board. You got it. That's wonderful. Wow, Rob. Now, what about the sales methodology that you use? Did that, that change after, after you ran for, the, for Congress? No, and I'm grateful to say it hasn't. And I, I, I resort back to that statement about principles. Let me give an example. Uh, during, the, during the COVID crisis, we have been spending countless hours with clients and non-clients trying to be helpful. How do you sell in this environment? Because if you don't sell, you're not driving revenues. And if you're not driving revenues, you're dying as a company. So what do you do in this environment? Well, here's the thing I've been saying pretty regularly, and that is techniques, strategies, tactics, they'll change market to market, season to season, certainly in sports, and that's true and also in other industries, because there's so many variables. But principles don't change. Principles are what we call universal truths. They apply in 2020. They'll apply in 2021. And you know what? They applied 20 years ago. So what are some common principles? That's what we focus on. We, when we work with an organization, we establish what the principles are. Why do we do this? Because every salesperson needs to work in something that they're sure of. That they're sure of. Um, something that's stable and that has a strong foundation. Otherwise, you're just following the latest gimmick, the latest sales trick, and eventually you're going to be found out. So we always establish the core principles that salespeople need to adhere to. And then once those principles are established, then we look at your market, we look at your competition, we look at your products or other offerings, and then we ask ourselves, now what technique, techniques or methodology can we layer on those principles and apply to your market and to your prospects that will work right now? And that's how it defines the methodology. So I'm grateful to say that our principles have been the same for 25 years, Roger. In fact, I discovered these principles selling for the worst franchise in the history of sports, according to Sports Illustrated, the old LA Clippers. And that's when I discovered these principles, that if I would apply principles with people that I'm talking to, I don't need to lie, I don't need to cajole, I don't need to convince them against their will, I just need to show them how the principles that they're looking for can be achieved through an association with our franchise. And I do that now with every company we work with. We start with the Clippers example. If I can sell the Clippers in South Central Los Angeles during the LA riots, I would add. That's, right. that's when I was there. Rodney King. Yeah, absolutely. If I can sell that product that was in the epicenter of the riots, then we could probably assist you in selling your product or service, even during a difficult, unprecedented crisis of COVID, even when you've got a faulty product, even when your competition has done something fabulous. Uh, we can help you get through that and we can help you excel and accelerate your success. Fantastic. Okay. So I have to ask you next um, because I, I love all this principal talk and that it, you know, overlaps and, you know, extends across different industries. I think that's, that's wonderful. Um, you have a book coming out called ah. the sales game changer, how to become a sales person people love. And I know that's your working title, so it may change. But are you bringing some of these stories and principles to this book? It sounds absolutely. I absolutely am. And, you know, I've been very fortunate over the years to have clients say to me in almost every one of our stops, so where's your book? <laughs> right? 
Uh, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, oh, that. yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that. Right. I, I, I gotta get, I gotta get on a plane to Cleveland right now. I'll worry about the book later. And, um, and that's on me. I have been remiss in not, in not memorializing these principles and these methodologies that we've been about all these years uh, so that they can be helpful to more people. And, and it's not like I've written the Bible of sales. I don't want your, your readers, or excuse me, your listeners or your viewers to think that. But I do think if we've been in business for 25 years and we've got a consistent client base, we must be doing something right. And we want that information to be accessible to more people. So we have an interesting story in that most sales trainers, most motivational speakers, most executive coaches, what do they invariably do with their clients? They usually bring sports metaphors to the table, right? Well, what we can do at Game Face uniquely is we don't have to talk about a story we read or something we saw on the news or something we made up, we can say, okay, let's put yourself in the, in the situation of the Chicago Bulls. Michael Jordan has just helped you win six championships in seven years. Now he retires the second time. He's done for good. What are you going to do to maintain the level of success you've enjoyed all these years on a revenue side? How are you going to ensure consistent sellouts because your sponsors demand it, and if you're going to maintain the budget that you've grown accustomed to, you better continue to sell out games for what looks to be a pretty lousy team coming up. What are you going to do? Well, when the Bulls were faced with that question back in the late 90s, they called Game Face. So now we're going to use what we did with them, and we're going to show in our book how that can be applied to any business. Whether you're, you've been in business 100 years or what are you going to do if you're an expansion franchise in sports and you're going into a very crowded market where people basically poo-poo your product? Like, come on, indoor football, Major League Soccer? When Major League Soccer came in the mid-1990s, it was the same time Game Face was born. So we've grown up with Major League Soccer. When Major League Soccer came in, you know, they, their predecessors – had a good run for a while, but everyone always says soccer is going to be America's sport in 10 years. We've been saying that for 50 years, right? So when Major League Soccer decided to launch with their original 12 teams, they knew that they had, they had to become, be, be viewed as serious, even though they were playing in football stadiums with football lines on the field. But they want to be viewed as a Major League sport. Well, what are they going to do? They called Game Face. And for the first three years of that league's life, we were the official sales coach for Major League Soccer. Wow. So again, whether you're an established organization that's used to winning or you're a new startup that doesn't know how to get traction and get attention, our sales principles and practices that will be found in, in the book uh, is, we hope, going to be a game changer for those companies and individuals. Wow. Can't wait for this book, Rob. What, when is your uh, release date? Do you have any date yet? We're going to have a soft launch later in the summer of 2020. Great. Um, and, uh, and then the, uh, the paperback is going to be coming out. The hard copy is going to be coming out. Uh, right now, the target, Roger, is on our 25th anniversary, which is October 1st of 2020. Fantastic. Well, we'll do our best to promote that as well through American Real because we want to support our guests. And uh, I can't wait for that book personally. I think it's going to be really needed, you know, in, in the industry and outside the industry. I think anyone who wants to, um, you know, take on a sales role or within any industry, I would think they'll be able to gain a lot from, from your book. So I'm excited for you. That's very kind of you. And thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I, I'm, I'm so excited for what we're doing with the book and the message it's going to have. And it, it will be applicable to anyone, whether they like sports or not. The fact is everybody relates to sports. They understand that common language. So we will use that from our experience to tell a story and to provide ideas and techniques that we think are transferable to any industry. Fantastic. So Rob, if you don't mind, I'd just love to get uh, a little personal with a couple of questions to maybe uh, share some wisdom to the, to the listeners and viewers. Uh, any, any 
techniques or things that you do personally, whether it's meditation, um, um, exercise that has given you, I guess, the, the stamina to, to be able to do so much and be able to, um, you know, reach so many industries and really expand your business almost as a second generation of, you know, on, here on your 25th uh, anniversary. Well, thank you for that question. Um, the first two things you mentioned, you, met, you said meditation and exercise. In actuality, those are the first two things I do every morning. Um, I do take, uh, you know, there are some mornings when I may skip it because of an early morning flight or because of another commitment. Um, but yes, I, I'm a religious man and I, I'm, I'm very de devout in, in my beliefs. So I take time every morning to contemplate my beliefs, uh, to read and uh, to really appreciate the, the bigger picture. And, um, and, and that has always been, as long as I've done it, it's always been really the ignition switch for my day. And um, it's amazing how much perspective uh, I get when I stay true to that. So uh, if anyone took that away from me, I would not be the same person. I would probably be miserable. I would be doubtful. I would probably have less hope. I would probably be um, less compassionate uh, as I try to be compassionate to individuals, certainly less kind and patient as I try to be. I'm not always successful at it, but I try to be kind and patient. So my, my spirituality is, is the beginning of who I am. And then I also, as soon as that moment, that time is over, and I try to devote at least 30 minutes to that every, every morning, as soon as I wake up, even though it's tempting to look at your phone or to open up your emails, um, I resist that. I've learned to resist that temptation and I'm better for it. Uh, then I immediately head to the exercise. Um, I've recently taken up over about a year and a half ago, I've taken up swimming, which I love to do as a kid. So I, I love that. It's, it's so therapeutic for me. I'm fortunate enough to, to be able to swim every day. Um, except I do take Sundays off from that exercise. Um, and then, um, and sometimes I go running. Um, I've recently, despite my age, decided to hit the, the weights, uh, which I never thought I would do, but I found that that's also very gratifying. So it's a combination of either swimming, running, or, or weights uh, every morning, or sometimes, a com uh, sometimes two or three of those together. Um, but I, I tell you, one of the things, Roger, since you asked, and I do, as I say, I do appreciate such a genuine question. Here's something I wish someone would have told me when I was younger that I've recently come to learn. And this is very personal, but it's had an impact on me and perhaps it can positively affect one of your devout listeners. And that is that as I learn to love the people that I work with, my work becomes more meaningful, less transactional, and more long lasting. And so love is a hard word. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of it out in the world today. Uh, it's usually resigned or confined, I should say, to the people in our home and maybe the people that we share cubicles with. Um, but I have, I have uh, learned through my own experience that if I will find something about everybody that I work with, even those who, will not, who refuse to work with me, if I can buy, find something about them that's admirable, that's commendable, that, um, you know, that I would want to adopt, a characteristic, a trait, uh, as, as I do that, uh, my days become better, they become shorter, and also my troubles become lessened. So I would encourage people to find something in, with everybody you interact with, something that you can love, even if it's a small thing. You may not love them as an entire person, but you love, you love the way they smile. You love the way they look at a problem. You love the way they treat their kid or their significant other. You love their work ethic. You love their loyalty. 
You love their passion. You find something about them that you can love. And I'm telling you, for me, it's been, it's been a game changer. Um, and so I'm not perfect at it yet. There are still some people that rub me the wrong way. And there are some people that, uh, you know, I just got to remember that's, that's somebody's son, right? <laughs> that's somebody's mom. Uh, but more and more, I, I'm, I'm developing that skill to look for what I can love. That's so powerful, Rob, and I'm, I'm really happy you shared that. We're, you know, we're about, at the, on this show, we're about raising the level of global consciousness, and mm -hmm. I believe that starts and ends with love. So, again, I don't typically talk about that. Guests don't really get into it, but I appreciate you doing it, and I appreciate you being somewhat vulnerable to share that because everyone wouldn't do it. Um, so thank you. I do have to ask you one question about something you mentioned earlier that just came out of left field. And that is yeah. you spoke or speak fluent Japanese. Ah, how does that happen? <laughs> well, I'm not so fluent anymore. Um, but in my, in my early years, in, in between college years, I actually served a mission for my church in Japan. So it was a two year commitment. And, um, I didn't know that I would be assigned to Japan in my church. When you say, I volunteer, I raise my hand. Uh, you basically say, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. You know, I'll go, I'll go to the neighboring state uh, or I'll go to the other side of the world. And in my case, I was asked to go to Japan. I didn't speak a lick of it. You know, when I started, after two months of intensive training, I got on an airplane and went to Japan and they weren't speaking the language I had just been taught. Uh, but I, I just had to throw myself into it, which was great training for business, I would add. Um, and I had to learn to be resourceful and I had to learn to just put my trust in, in certain principles and, and practices and find a couple of mentors who could help me. And uh, so anyway, that's how I learned to speak it. I was fortunate enough after that, uh, that term of service was over to go back to Japan after I graduated from university to work there for the Japanese government, wow. not in any kind of clandestine way. Uh, I worked for the Ministry of Education, where I think, Roger, I may have gotten that bug for teaching. Um, and, I, and then my, my, I had married and my wife was with me. She was also a teacher in the Japanese school system as I was. And I've been back a few times since. And in fact, uh, uh, we, had, we were supposed to be back uh, at this time, but because of the COVID virus, uh, obviously our plans had, have changed. But we had some work over there that's been pushed out of ways. Uh, but I just love the country. I love the people. Um, if next time we're together, Roger, uh, we're going to sushi, okay? That sounds great. <laughs> no, and we actually have that in common too. When I was living in Portland, I, I went to Japan for a couple of months. Ah. And um, so I got to experience the culture and, uh, and they, the, the company I went there for sent me to school. So we mm. do have that in common. And I re remember some words. I definitely wasn't fluent, but uh, it, it was amazing. And I have to ask you, where, where were you located? Uh, at first, I was um, uh, on, a, on an island called Shikoku, which is the, uh, the smallest of the four main islands of Japan. Okay. So I was in, in, on Shikoku Island in a city called Matsuyama. Okay. And then the, for the most of my mission, I was in Hiroshima. Okay. Great. Great. And I was in uh, Fukuoka, which mm. is on the island of Kyushu. That's right. Beautiful area. Hot down there. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I just I, I think it's such a romantic country, uh, and I don't mean that necessarily in the in that way, but I just. I just love the Japanese history. I'm a big sumo buff. So if you ever want a lesson in how sumo, the history of sumo. <laughs> we'll have to schedule me. another podcast for that. Now, what about Matsui? Did you ever meet Matsui? No, I never have. Um, but uh, I actually, uh, one of my neighbors um, is the former agent of Ichido. No kidding. Yeah, which is, I just learned last week. It's just the craziest thing. So Incredible. he and I are going to get together soon, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Ichiro Suzuki and Japanese baseball. That's wonderful. Rob Cornelius, wow, this has been a, a, a really amazing episode. I'm so glad we got connected. And um, right. if people want to reach you, what's the best way for them to connect? 
Well, certainly our game, our, our website is an easy way, gamefaceinc.com, gamefaceinc.com. Uh, but I, I freely give out my email address. Um, so if anyone wants to contact me directly, uh, RYC, those are my initials, RYC at gamefaceinc.com. And certainly I hope uh, your viewers will connect with me on LinkedIn as well. It's a great way for us to communicate. So thank you for, for that opportunity to connect with, with your fans. Absolutely. Rob Cornelius, welcome to the American Real family. Thank you so much. And uh, can't wait to watch what you have coming in the future. And I can't wait for this book to come out. You'll get a copy, Roger. You can, you can bet on that. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review, as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one -on -one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy, where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we can help. You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you 